Yeah, we can just sort of source material adaptations and what do you do with this story? Yeah. What do you do with a story like Mitty? How do you solve a problem like Walter Mitty? <laughs> do you make it into a musical? I mean, it was made into a musical twice. It was made into a movie musical. I, I mean, like this version. Like, oh. you make this one a version. It was turned into a Broadway show, too. Oh, it was? Yeah. Unrelated yeah, the, the to the Broadway version. It's supposed to be not good, from what I've heard. Yeah, it's very, like. Different. Dead bad. Yeah. yeah. But it's like. He, he wants to have an affair with someone. Right. But it's, like, played by his wife or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, That's it's... Weird. I don't know. I guess it's, it's a, you know, pina colada song sort of scenario. <laughs> yeah. Take ground control to major taunt. commencing countdown engines on. Check ignition. And welcome to another episode of Why Did We Watch This, the podcast where three friends sit down, watch a movie, <laughs> a troubled movie, <laughs> have a themed cocktail uh, while we get through it, uh, and then, you know, talk about what was okay, what was not so okay, now could we do better? Eh. <laughs> That's some good accent work. How do you make better? You're a regular Ben Stiller. Yeah. I am your host for this week, Lee. Don't fear the porpoise, Delahanty. I'm Chris, tough and tender, Ravel. And I'm Brendan High, WTF Factor Drishler. <laughs> and uh, if you couldn't guess one of those nicknames, why would you be able to guess? Why? Uh, we have just finished watching 2013's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I've got that year right, right? You got it, yep, 2013. Yeah. Um, directed by and starring Ben Stiller. Yep. Working with his favorite actor, uh, also Kristen starring Wig. Yep, Kristen Wiig, Shirley MacLaine, Adam Scott, Catherine Hahn, and Sean Penn. A lot of good actors. A lot of good actors. A quality team. Yeah. Repeat offender Catherine Hahn at this point. Mm-hmm. After Tomorrowland. Oh, yeah. Has she really not been in anything else we've done? Except for Let's think about it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take as much time yeah. as we need. So, yeah, we had to obviously have a nice little drink to get through. We, had, we, had a we had two nice little yeah, drinks. We had some, some nice little drinks. What did we have? So the first drink, the cocktail that we actually made, is called the Quintessence of Life. The Quintessence of Life is two ounces of clementine juice. Very important to the plot. Two ounces of tequila, one ounce of Campari, and some seltzer. I got some mandarin seltzer. Yeah. Uh, what you do is you add the clementine juice, tequila, and, and Campari to a shaker with ice and give it a good shake. Strain it into a glass with ice and top it with some seltzer. Give it a gentle stir to mix everything all together and sip, 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 baby. Sip, sip, sip. Drip, drip, drip. It was pretty good. I liked it a lot. The color came out gorgeous. It did. It's very Campari-y in color. Yes. And also- very Campari in taste. It was, yeah. yeah. The Campari overpowered uh, a lot of the other flavors, which is not necessarily bad because mm-hmm. I do like the bitterness of Campari. It, it was, I think, a little less overtly orange juicy than I yes. thought it might have been. Yeah. But I had a little sip of the squeezed clementine juice before I got rid of it, and it is a very mild taste, you know? Interesting. So, I, I almost wonder, if you were to use bottled orange juice, it would probably taste a lot different, right? Because you've got sugar, you've got other ingredients well, in there as well. Well, and especially if it's from concentrate, then yes, right. that yeah. would be more intense. So uh, I, I think your flavor profile might be a little bit different if you were not using just literally the juice of some clementines that you squeezed. That being said, didn't hate it. Didn't hate it! I thought it was a perfectly... I mean, I like Campari. I do too. You got a little bit of orange. Yeah. Uh, orange and Campari are a natural I like uh, seltzer in cocktails just yes. to sort of lighten things up a little bit sometimes. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I had no complaints with this. Truly, it was the quintessence of life. We, also, we had a side sip. We had a side yeah. sip. Um, I don't know why. I just felt like it was uh, uh, that, that sort of... What's that sort of Nordic... I was pretty Hugo. Hugo. Uh, I wanted to be cozy and wintry, and I think Brenda had suggested that we get some like baked goods to mm. enjoy, and I was like, "Well, 
Well, let's get like a nice scotch. Yeah. Because uh, there's a, a volcanic eruption in this movie, and I was like, a nice, like, smoky, mm-hmm. rich scotch. Mm-hmm. So I got us the Lagavulin 12 year single malt. Yes, and it's. It's fabulous. Yeah. It was very good. I liked it a lot. It's been a while since I've just had straight scotch. The, it's like it's it's like sipping a it's like sniffing a campfire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it comes in like honey, but then the finish is so smoky and peaty. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's it was good. it was a nice excuse. Yeah. And it did make me feel that like wintry coziness. Yeah. Huga. And Huga. I think I'll be glad to have that bottle of scotch sitting in there. No, I think it'll definitely come in handy <laughs> later. Happen it later this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was a overall pretty good, successful yeah. evening of drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, nicely buzzed. Yeah, so before we get into talking about this movie, I guess we should Let's talk about, like, what is this movie? Fucking happened. What is it? the secret life of Walter Mitty? Yeah. Can you tell me what is the quintessence of life? No! <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's a picture of Ben Stiller. <laughs> Walter Mitty is a negative assets manager at Life Magazine who daydreams of adventures and has a crush on a co-worker named Cheryl Melhoff. Walter attempts to contact Cheryl via eHarmony... Winky Winky product placement, but Todd Mayer, an eHarmony representative, explains his account lacks enough information to do so. Mitty works with legendary photojournalist Sean O'Connell, although they have never met in person. O'Connell has sent Mitty his latest negatives and a wallet as a gift and appreciation of Mitty's work. O'Connell believes negative 25 captures the, quote, quintessence of life and that it should be used for the cover of Life Magazine's final print issue before it converts to online status. The negative is missing, forcing Walter to stall for time with corporate transition manager Ted Hendricks, who is handling the downsizing. While he views the other negatives, Cheryl suggests that Mitty think of the negatives as clues to Sean's location. They look at three of them, including one of a person's thumb with a unique ring on it, and another of a curved piece of wood. A third picture of a boat leads Mitty to ascertain that O'Connell is in Greenland. Mitty flies there to find him. A bartender in, how do you say, Nuke? Nuke? Do you remember? Uh, I think... Nook. Nook. Okay. Nook. I thought Nook. Whatever. A bartender there explains to that O'Connor left on a ship to find him. Mitty would need to get onto the postal helicopter, and the pilot is drunk. Mitty recognizes the pilot's thumb with a unique ring from one of O'Connell's negatives. After he imagines Cheryl singing "Space Oddity," Mitty gains new confidence and boards the helicopter despite misgivings. Mitty learns that the helicopter cannot land upon the ship. Misunderstanding the pilot, Mitty falls into the ocean rather than jumping into a dinghy boat. He splashes down to the ice-cold, shark-infested waters, losing a box of ship-to-shore radio components before being brought aboard. Mitty learns that O'Connell departed the ship earlier. The crew offers him clementine cake. Remember that O'Connell left behind. (laughs) Mitty discovers O'Connell's destinations in the wrapping paper. The itinerary directs Mitty to Iceland where O'Connell is photographing the volcano. I cannot begin to say that. No, no one can. Yep. It's a volcano. He arrives at the village of Icelandic or Greenland place. Iceland (laughs) place. Near the volcano using a longboard, and notices O'Connell on a plane flying near the volcano. Interruption forces Minnie to flee, and he obeys a text message recalling him to New York. For failing to recover the negative, Mitty is fired. He learns that Cheryl, who was let go earlier, seems to have reconciled with her estranged husband. Mitty returns home discouraged and visits his mother, throwing away the wallet he received from O'Connell. To his surprise, Mitty recognizes the curve of the piano in his mother's house while she is looking at the last photograph. When asked, she mentions having met O'Connell. She told Mitty earlier that he was daydreaming and failed to hear her. Mitty discovers O'Connell in the Himalayas and finds him photographing a rare snow leopard. When asked about the negative, O'Connell explains that the message on the gift wrapping to look inside was literal. The negative was in the wallet. When pressed to reveal the image on the negative, O'Connell dismisses the question and joins at a high-altitude football game with some locals. You know, one of those classic high-altitude football games that we've all played. It's always happening. Yep. Mitty flies to Los Angeles but is detained by airport security during a misunderstanding. Interesting. Mitty calls the only person he knows in Los Angeles, Todd, the representative at eHarmony, who is kept in contact during Mitty's adventures. While helping his mother sell her piano, Mitty recounts his stories but mentions that he discarded the wallet. His mother gives him the wallet, which she retrieved from the trash. Finding the negative, an emboldened Mitty delivers it to Life magazine, 
telling management that it was the photograph O'Connell wanted for the final issue, and berates Hendricks for disrespecting the staff that made the magazine so honored before walking away from the office. Mitty reunites with Cheryl, telling her that he has been thinking about and inspired by her, and learns that Cheryl's ex-husband was only at her house to repair the refrigerator. Mitty tells Cheryl of his adventures and admits that he does not know what negative 25 shows. Mitty and Cheryl see the final issue of Life at a Newsstand, with its cover dedicated to the staff. It is accompanied by the photograph from Negative 25, showing Mitty sitting outside of the Life building, examining a contact sheet. Mitty and Cheryl continue their walk down the street, holding hands. And that is the secret life of Walter Mitty. There you go. And that was the end of the episode. Anyway, we'll be back in two weeks. Yep. Bye. <laughs> All right. Um, so, obviously, maybe not obviously, to some of you younger ignorant fucks out uh, there. Fucking Generation Z. Yeah. Uh, their TikToks. Zoomers. And their hula hoops. And their jokes yeah. and ticks. This is... Clementine Cakes. This movie is adapted from a uh, famous short story. Yep. Written mm-hmm. in the days gone by. The days gone by. <laughs> days gone by. The days gone by. Uh, by James Thurber, who yep. was sort of like a notable like satirist, satirist, yeah, yeah. cartoonist. Yeah. A, All of the above. He doesn't really do like... He's never really written like a novel. He right. writes he like a short story. He writes kind of like shorter form lighter stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he did a lot of like, there's a lot of like fantastical elements to them. Yeah, like exactly. if not like, realism. right? If yeah, if not like outright fantasy, then there are elements of yeah characters who are. He's actually in written a couple thing. like actual kid like fairy tale books too, and he used to do his own drawings for them. It's pretty famous. It gets it gets like read a lot, or it used to when I was a kid get read a lot in schools. Yeah, I don't know how much it still does because I never read it in school. Better people that either. you could be reading. Um, I'm not to slam on James Thurber. I mean, I like the the big selling point I think about it is that it's relatively short, right? It's, it's short, short. It's yeah. to the point. You like you get what you're supposed to get from the story just by reading those, you know, the yeah. couple of pages that it is, and you can go from there. Um. But yeah, it's... So I wish we probably talk briefly about the short story. There's not a lot happening no. in the short story. The short story is about a middle-aged married man who is basically just going about a day of errands with his wife. Right. And he consistently, like, forgets or is behind or like is, is like, sort of held up by, uh, fan- day- like, these daydreams that he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems like he's having them because his life is so interminably boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he needs to, like, escape into these fantasies. And they're also loosely inspired by things that people say to him. Like, yeah. something will happen, and, and that will make him think, like, oh, like, what if I was a surgeon for some reason <laughs> yeah, but doing his, surgery? His fantasies are, like, pretty much stereotypical ideas of, of the time of right. what a real man would right, be. Right, like you're in war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a war, or, like, a surgeon. Again, a surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> Or like a uh, somebody. The last one is like a sort he's, of like revolutionary being right, on like the firing he, line. Yeah, yeah, he's about to get shot. He's about to get shot. Um, and talk, 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 it's okay. a pretty short story. There's really not like a beginning, middle, and end. It's just sort of like an, a, a slice of this guy's right. life, and it really doesn't tell you. You really don't walk away with a clear idea of what you're supposed to take from it. Like you could, you could take from it that this is a good thing for Ultimate, or you could take from it that it is a bad thing for Ultimate. Mm. It doesn't really cast judgments on him. He just sort of presents it and lets the, yeah, lets the reader yeah. draw their own conclusions. I mean, I I don't know. I, again, I think there's powerful elements together. Like you could look at it and, and see him as like a sympathizing figure. I mean, you could, and I do look at it as like this poor fucking woman has to put up with this guy 
who can't get shit anything done. Right. I mean, she is also, to be fair, I guess, a very two-dimensional character. She's two-dimensional, yeah. She, she's just, in my head, I imagine Walter Mitty is like this guy who's like five feet tall, like little, with like big glasses, like, <laughs> okay, dear. His wife being like this large, yeah. six-foot-tall woman with like an enormous coat and a, like a purse who's always hitting him. You know, like, the sort of stereotypical comic dichotomy of like, little man, big wife kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but there is like a reading of this, because it's written by James Thurber, a man who probably empathizes with Walter Mitty, that like, mm-hmm. it, it's a very one-sided depiction of, like, what it's like in this sort of relationship, whereas, like, in real life, the woman is more of a nuanced character who just wants her husband to be able to go in the fucking store and buy the right thing. Right, exactly. Right. While she's going to get her hair done, she would like him to get, like, X, Y, and Z at the store, yeah. and he remembers two of those things. Yeah. But anyway... I think it's also, um, I, I mean, also just as a quick note, which I'm sure you're going to get to, yeah. it, this was also the inspiration for another movie oh, yeah. uh, starring Danny Kaye. So I feel like just going off of that movie, I think it's very clear that people who might have read the story at the time were certainly taken by Walter Mitty as a character who is like almost inspirational in a way, right? Where yeah. it's, it's like they, they don't view what he's doing as a bad thing. They look at this guy like, oh man, like what a fantastic imagination this little guy must have. Like let's, yeah. let's see what he's into. I mean, if I had to guess, it's just that like people relate to this. Like people have... Humdrum lives, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Oh, I understand Walter Mitty, like the kind of shit he's going through, and I understand why he's daydreaming." I do find that relatable to a certain degree because I do find, I mean, I do daydream a lot, and even especially when I was a kid, I would actively fantasize instead of thinking about the things that were actually happening around me. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I necessarily checked out to the same degree that Walter does, but like, I do sympathize with that a little bit of finding more excitement and pull in a fantasy than engaging with what's in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to see why someone would read the short story and be like, we gotta do something with this. Like, yeah. this screams out to be adapted into something else. I think you could definitely read it too and think, this is actually like a really good framework because... Theoretically, you can kind of do whatever fantasy sequences you want. Right. I mean, like, yeah. that's that, that's basically what you get from the Danny Kaye version of the story. But where, I mean, like, you, you have an excuse to do these elaborate musical sequences, yeah. what have you. And so the thing, yeah, that's the thing is, like, I don't want to, again, I don't want to slam a very uh, renowned author and cartoonist. But, like, I feel like the story is, like, more memorable for the feelings it evokes and the actual quality of the story. Well, there's very little there there. There's not a lot there. But, you know, I think it just just hooked into something that people connected to for whatever reason. And so you did have the the 50s adaptation, which is a vastly different movie. Right. Um, And because, I mean, mostly I think because Danny Kaye became attached to it, it had to be filled with patter songs. Right. Like, everything was a musical sequence. Right. Danny Kaye always says, if it doesn't patter, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Did he really say that? No, no. no that's one joke we made up. Yeah. Oh. Yes. When his agent was shopping scripts in front of him, he yeah. said, oh, it's, it's a mu- Daddy, it's a musical. Listen to all these great songs. He goes, ah, doesn't matter. It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. I wish he had made that one of his like personal mottos, you know? <laughs> it's probably, probably on his gravestone. Or like he would have like titled his memoir that. By all accounts, Danny Kaye was a fucking saint of a man. I don't know. Maybe he was an asshole, but it seems like he was. Really I, I've not heard anything bad yeah. about him. Um, but... In any case, you ended up with, like, a very different story, the brunt of which was that you uh, kind of had this meek character similar to the midi of the stories, but then the idea is that he's younger, he's not married, he's... He has a fiancé. Yeah, and the brunt of the story is that, like, he gets to have a big adventure mm-hmm. uh, in the course of, like, meeting this other woman and, like, saving her from, like, Nazis. In, right. I, I, they're they're, like, the they're trying to find jewels or something. Yeah, it's like really some sort of Nazi that. gold story. Yeah, level, yeah, like, yeah. These, where you know. she and her uncle or dad or something are trying to recover, yeah. whatever. 
You get it. But it's, it's about, it's, you know, it's the sort of, like, light-hearted caper. Right. Uh, where he has to sort of man up and, like, save the damsel. Right. And I, I think also, to be fair, the short story is kind of like a light-hearted story, too. There's not yeah. a lot of, like, a- angst, right? You're no. not, like, probing the character of Ultra Mitty or his wife, being like, but how does this really affect her? It's just sort you of, like... You could read again. it, and you could bum yourself out by reading it, uh-huh. but the story's not trying to bum you out. No, it is not. And, I mean, also, if you look at... I can't remember the name, and I was trying to look it up on my phone, but what's the the James Thurber story? Is it, like, The Unicorn in the Garden or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that one works me out. No, it, it should, right? <laughs> it's, a, where it's, a very, it's a very similar premise, where it's, like, you know, like a, a small sort of, like, guy who likes fantasy mm-hmm. and this sort of domineering wife, yeah. where he's like, hey, I think there's a unicorn in the garden. She's like, there's no unicorn in the garden. Like, like what a ridiculous thing. I'm going to call the insane asylum yeah. and have them take you away. And she, like, calls them and they come over and he's like, oh, I never said there's a unicorn in the garden. And she's like, yes, he did. There's a unicorn in the garden. Like, oh, we better take you to the loony bin, wife. Yeah, and he's yes. like, boy, my life is a lot better now that my wife is in here. The whole, the whole point of that story is to make a stupid joke about booby hatch because yeah. they called booby hatch was, like, slang for, for an insane, insane asylum. Yeah. And the more, the, he, like, says in the, at the end of the story, like, the moral of the story is don't, don't count your, your boobies, boobies before they, they hatch. hatch. Yeah. That's yeah. It's 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 a, a a bit of a long walk. Listen, Listeners, I made a face. This is why I'm a little wary of James Thurber. I'm just saying, like, this he's a second story about these henpacked husbands. I mean, he he just he's he's dealing with a a bunch of themes over yeah. and over again. It's like, <coughs> excuse but me. in any case, uh, it's a harmless enough story to, to start from. Yeah. Um, and that being said, this movie went through the 2015 <coughs> version went through like a basically like a are you okay. Yeah. Uh, went through like a 12 year or so development hell, and it yeah. went through many different drafts. And it seems like they initially were inspired by the 50s. Yes. When they came, they were like, we want to do like a, I guess, like a, a remake of that. Yeah, a remake yeah. of that. Um, and it had like Jim Carrey, which is a closer Danny Kay analog, I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I agree. Thriller. He's a little, yeah, he's a little more manic. Yeah. I mean, like, not that Danny Kay is per se manic, but he's a little more like light. And, yeah. 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 And, yeah I, I see that. And like, I could see Jim Carrey as Walter Mitty in that respect. I remember following the development of this movie and mm-hmm. having him be replaced by Ben Stiller and going like Ben Stiller. That's a <laughs> wasn't weird there? Choice. I feel like there there was like a whole slew of like there it was, was ever who like who was popular that year as a yeah. comic actor was eventually attached to this version. Yeah, it's sort of easy to tell how the screenplay has molted over various drafts. How like looking at the transition that takes you from Jim Carrey to eventually Ben Stiller, right? How it's like two different styles of comedy you've got right there. Jim Carrey's a little bit more like frantic and over the top yeah. and Ben Stiller's like not unfunny but he's always been a little bit more I guess realistic. But, but you think of Zoolander which is his baby and Zoolander's nuts. That's true and I was also going to say like Meet the Parents is a little ridiculous yeah. too even though that's not like his creative vision per se. Yeah. So like I, I could see Ben Stiller doing broad comedy but I I've also seen Ben Stiller in, like, Zero Effect, which is a much more, like, subtle... Or, yeah. you know, like, Reality Bites. Like, and yeah, other, or, other things um, he's done that are a little more low-key. Keeping the faith, man. Keeping the faith. Keeping uh, the faith is not that low-key. It's not... Keeping the faith is also bad. not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger issue. Right yeah. Hand. But in any case, you know, it's it's a strange process. Didn't he make that movie Greenberg, too, which was also more serious? Uh, like, yeah, but about no, like, a man no his, one like, silver ears. cared about it. Um, but you have, I think, halfway through these, like, drafts and, and changes, like, I think that the producers decided that they did decide, they did want to make it their own thing, mm. and they did want it to be, like, they talked about uh, wanting to find worth in, like, the everyday work that someone does. Right. I, I think it's also important to note that they kind of went back to the short story versus yeah. making an adaptation of the Danny Kaye movie, which yeah, is they, an important distinction. To and make. they acknowledge that the short story doesn't have a lot there. Right. And I, I think that's the, that, that shows you, like, just, again, how this movie can transform depending on who's attached to it, right? Yeah. This movie is less of an ad- adaptation of the short story than it is of, like, an adaptation of a one-sentence summary of the short story, which is to yeah. say, like, guy has that elaborate has fantasies, yeah. and that's about it, it right? It sort of just takes the very basic logline 
and that's its jumping off point. Everything else, it just sort of does well, yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that, like, that, that's yeah. a bad thing to do. I'm just saying that if you're looking for similarities to the short story, there's not a whole lot there. The short story is kind of, it's a little, like, frivolous. It's a little, like, light. Yeah. And this, um... Would you say this is more of maybe, like, a thematic adaptation? Uh, or, like... I mean, the character is, uh, on paper... Strong themes of yeah, the story. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really either. I think on paper... The character of Walter Mitty is pretty similar in that he is just mm-hmm. a guy who has elaborate fantasy sequences. I think the way that they treat that character and the way that they adapt that character to this version is mm-hmm. vastly different from what he is in the short story. Well, they also, like, it's different a lot from the Danny K. I think that the Danny K. one is close to the, the book character in the sense yes. that his fantasies regularly hinder him from doing normal tasks. Yeah. Whereas, like, Ben Stiller's Walter Mitty doesn't really seem hindered by his fantasies. It seems like he's just an escapement. The only time, the only time yeah. it comes up. I, I raise my finger at that. Is I'm talking about it. However, well, Adam Scott mentions it too a couple times. We're like, he's getting yeah. coffee, and Adam Scott's like, if I threw a paper clip at like, him, do you think this guy would move? It's not like he forgot to buy milk at the store because of it. It's like he's been a successful employee at this. No, I know, but like, it literally seems like he goes into a catatonic state while okay, he's having yeah. a fantasy. Well, that, given how people react to it, let me yeah, let me clarify the difference here. In the Danny Kaye yeah. version. Everyone around him is like, what a fucking failure Walter Mitty is. He can't do shit. He yeah, can't remember yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Fair. In this movie, he's seemingly a very he's competent He's competent enough to have kept his job manager. for however many years he's yeah, had. And yeah, and he's like proud of his work. And yeah. no one seems to think that he's... And he's also unfailingly kept the books for his uh, family. family and mm-hmm. like held them up financially for many years. Yeah. Whereas everyone in the old one is just shitting on Danny Kaye for like not being able to do anything and being like dragged along by his mother and his fiance. Well, we don't really have so much of a henpecked dynamic happening in this movie either. I guess the closest you could say we might come to that would be I guess the boss picking on him or I guess like it's not henpecked. That would be yeah. cockpit. Right. Yeah. I it's guess. Or, I mean, like, I guess the closest we get to that then would maybe be Odessa. But well, he's she's, not. She's but Odessa's, not really yeah. Odessa's, Odessa's not, like, beating him down or right. anything. He's not. My, my biggest point here that I'm trying to make is that there's... The one in the old one is, is still the sort of meek character that can't get anything done at first and has to learn mm-hmm. to man up. Ben Stiller, that's not really where we start from with him. He has these fantasies that definitely, like, cause... Inc- they cause, like, problems in his life in that he gets distracted and forgets things, but yeah. he's still a competent person. I guess I would also say the fantasy sequences in this movie versus a short story. In this movie, it's more about him living his... Like, they're all directly correlating to how he'd like to live his life, for the most yeah. part. I think they're supposed to, at least. Yeah. In the short story, it's just like, wouldn't it be fun? Like, wouldn't yeah. it be fun if I was a surgeon? They're pretty divorced from his current reality. Right. Whereas... They're prompted by things mildly, but then he's just sort yeah. of like, and what if I was in the army? Wouldn't that be delightful? Yeah. But like, whereas in this one, it's him fantasizing about like, like, oh, like, what if I was the sort of guy that Cheryl liked? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like, yeah. what if I, what if I saved Cheryl's dog by giving it a robotic leg? Yeah. Crap like that. So, I, yeah, we might as well just get into like the structure yeah, of this go. movie as it is. And so like, you basically have... The, what we ended up with with Ben Stiller, who ended up not only becoming the, the lead character, but also directing. Yep. It was an interesting choice. There was a draft of the screenplay that ended up going with this by the guy who wrote The Pursuit of Happiness, Steve Conrad, um, which is an interesting place I never to saw it. I, I mean, I'm aware of Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I'm sure this guy is like a decent enough writer, um, but I did read an interview from him that I think like, I sent it to you guys. It, was, mm-hmm. it gives me a little pause because he said that the um, Benjamin Button scene was one of his we, favorites. We sh- you should specifically go into the details about what this sequence yes. is. So the, all right, so... In one of the various fantasies he has about him and Cheryl. Yeah, so, like, I guess in broad strokes, the movie is about, obviously we've talked about the summary, but it's basically the arc of him having to, like, chase down this negative, which ends up sort of also chasing down Sean O'Connell, and uh, just to get the, like, the last photo. And there's sort of this other through arc of him 
his mother's moving into like a assisted living facility or yeah. something or something. Yeah, home. It's, and it is some kind of like group home. Yeah, and she yeah. wants to keep her piano, and he's do, he's really like trying to move fucking heaven and earth to keep this piano. Mm. And there's kind of a he upgrades her of, room to be able yeah, to there's right, a to get her more expensive room so it wouldn't fit in the old one. Yeah, there's like a decent to do over like the dad gave her the piano and like it's important to her and like it's kind of question mark. Do we mention? I'm sorry. Did the synopsis mention that his dad died and he had to like step up? I legitimately I don't, don't think remember. The synopsis mentioned it, but weird thing to omit because that's yeah, that, that kind important. of matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of cover early on that like it's heavily implied that the reason that Walter Mitty is the way he is. Uh, they sort of cut to a photo from him in high school where he had a mohawk and he mm. was a skater and he's still really good at skateboarding. Mm. Um, and then his dad died very suddenly and he had to like uh, right. shave his hair. Right. Walter says he was seventeen. His dad died. Yeah. They had no money. He had to get a job immediately and start working. Yeah. So, so like, he like worked at like he worked John. at Papa John's. Hey guys, by the way, let's get some Papa John's. Did <laughs> <laughs> you go for a fucking papadilla? I know I could. Yeah. I did recognize, by the way. Speaking of. Um, you know how, like, a lot of times when they're walking around life, just in sort of, like, connective mm-hmm. dialogue scenes, uh, then they have all those kind of, like, old life-framed photographs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize a bunch of them, because I have, like, a life photography book, and it had one of my favorites up in the movie, which is... Uh, Picture of Ben Stiller as an astronaut? Yes, yeah. and I was yeah. like, there it is! The final issue. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? um, It's a picture of some kind of uh, avant-garde photographer, but you can't see most of his face because he has a hood and this very elaborate camera. Mm -hmm. But it's a very striking image because you see the outline of a human face and then what's filling up most of it is this machine. It's probably a ghost. Anyway, there are like little moments throughout the life world that are like cute and nice. No, I mean, the movie, it must be said, looks amazing. Yeah, again, I'm not sure who gets... Most of the credit here. Probably both of them. the DP. Yeah, probably the DP. I think Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. I give him a lot of. I'll give him enough credit, but like, I don't think that he has the the visual chops. No, I I I don't think he's. I think just especially when you compare it to the other movies he's done, which are like yeah. fine. Like he's not like I a bad he, director. He but. did great working with the DP because yeah. I imagine he trusted the DP to make some excellent choices. Agreed. But um, I don't think he was responsible for those choices. Yeah, but I'm sorry, we were talking about before we went on that little tangent about the yeah. Magazine so like yeah, basically the the main arcs are like chasing down this negative. That's the sort of MacGuffin you have to chase in this movie. And that sort of sends him across the globe. And then sideways to that, parallel to that is like, is making sure his mother and uh, is like safe in this home with her piano, mm-hmm. which inexplicably, after all the work he goes through, they sell the piano right. after all that. Mm-hmm. And which, that, I don't want to talk, we'll talk about that yeah. a little bit, but like, I don't understand how we end I, I don't it's either, It's an anticlimactic end <laughs> to... <laughs> and then she's just like, well, the piano doesn't matter anyway. Right. Yeah, right. And that's <laughs> so it's weird too, that like, uh, like, I think there's a version of the story that works where Walter is the one who's holding onto the piano and projecting yes. it onto his mother and being like, yeah. no, mom really wants to keep this piano. And at the end, she's like, I, I don't care about the piano. Like, I yeah. care about you. It's... I care about the memories I have of your father. Like, I'm not, I don't want to be burdened by this. I wish they had taken it more in that direction because as it stands in the movie, Movie, we get all of the importance of the piano mostly from Walter, and yeah. we kind of get the impression from him that it's important to the mom, mm-hmm. which makes for an incredibly lame payoff when she's just like, "Oh no, yeah, get rid of fine. it!" Because yeah. it, it makes it seem like, "Mom, why didn't you fucking tell right, me?" Like, like, right before we agreed to pay more per month to get you in a villa, why don't you just say, "You know what? Doesn't really matter." Yeah. I wondered if that was kind of like an old script, new script issue of like, did one version no, have I, this be a bigger I, deal? So did the other version not? Lee, Lee is right in that it. it did not. It, it is a little more, uh, I think, understandable in the version of the script that we read. Yeah. Where, uh, th- like, th- there is this whole emphasis throughout the movie that he doesn't have enough money to pay for this villa, but in this version of the movie, it's kind of brushed aside. Where, like, they're talking to the guy, and he's like, well, you know, you you were going to have the apartment for you to live in, but we could get her a villa instead, which will have a bigger living room she can put the piano in. It is going to cost, like, $3,000 more a month or whatever. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, whereas in the 
original draft, the, or he's the older draft that we read, he's like, ooh, uh, yeah, I guess that's fine. But it mentions that, like, he's concerned about having to pay for this. And so, like, it makes some sense in that version of the script that they sell the piano just because, like, they might not have the money. Right. But here's the thing, but, Brendan. Yes, yeah. They don't sell they don't the piano, sell the piano. That version. Yep. The big deal is he's worried because he knows he's going to get fired. Right. He gets a severance package, and that means he can keep the piano. Mm-hmm. But... Does here's mom the still thing. say she doesn't care? No. Oh. But here's the thing in that, in that draft. The, the, we were talking about, you, we sort of were watching it and like extrapolated this idea that the piano was very significant to Walter because he cares a lot about his dad who died. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of his like last, uh, memory or remnant of his dad. And that's why he clings to it. But the movie, those other, the other script that we read kind of draws a lot of attention to something that really doesn't get a lot of attention on in the, in the final draft, which is that actually Todd Mahar specifically calls it out a lot to him. Where they have all these conversations about, like, why... Let's find something noteworthy to talk about. Yeah. And in the final draft, we get that he fills it up with all of these, like... Oh, I fought a shark today. Mm-hmm. And he starts doing stuff. We kind of see a, somewhat of that at the end well, of this movie. What I'm saying is that's what happens in the yeah. movie. Yeah. But in the other script, that does happen. But also, Todd Mahar is, like, more explicitly engaged... More and more engaged with, like, who Walter, Walter Mitty is as a person. Mm-hmm. And... Is like sort of like finding things about Walter Mitty that are interesting that Walter Mitty doesn't think are interesting, and he's like, well, he sort of like slip at some point that he's like trying to move his mom into this villa, or whatever, and he's he kind of like has this sort of brand that he gives Charlotte, but like you know, I had to like keep her you know afloat for X many years, and and Todd Mahar is like, man, that's kind of like impressive that like you do this and that you're able to like keep your mom afloat, that you support them so so much, like not you know that's pretty noteworthy, like. Mm-hmm. If that's important to you, and it sounds like it is, like, you know, that you've unfailingly been able to take care of them. And so in that version of the story, it seems like Walter Mitty, like, it is a point of pride for him, and that it is something that he really wants to be able to do, is to, like, support his family and, and give them the things that they want. And so I think that the piano is is significant to him in that movie, but because of that, not because of his dad, because it represents, like, him being able to care for the people who raised him. Yeah. I, I don't know if we explicitly said this, but like we we were mentioning it. Yeah. You and I had read an older version of this screenplay. Yes. Uh, there, there are, I, I assume there are dozens of versions of the screenplay. This is the one that's easily available. Right. This is the one that's easily available if you try and find an older version online. Yeah. I think the uh, the broad strokes are very similar in terms of like what's actually happening. It's more or less the same. There are yeah. uh, there are specifics that differ, but like if you were to break it down into like a three paragraph summary, you'd more or less have the same story. Yeah. It, it's still chasing after the negative, chasing after Sean. There's a lot of interesting, weird differences. Some I like, some I don't like. Mm. Um, there, he meets Sean twice in the, in the original draft, which is we we like. I can't decide if I like it or not, but it's kind of weird. It, it like, leads I, to this amusing I, joke where like yeah. he's about to sort of maybe get some information on where the negative is, and then they're, they're in Somalia and people are being evacuated because there are uh, like you know civil wars going on, and he sort of stumbles upon Sean like locked arms with like Korean military in a football field. And he's like, oh, you need the negative. And then, like, made a conversation. Suddenly, like, all of the soldiers and Sean get... Right, like, you think he's about to get an answer. Where, like, Sean's like, like, you you have... Where he's like, where's the photo? He's like, you have the photo. And he's like, what what do you mean? He's like, give me five bucks. As a way of saying, like, look in your wallet. wallet, Like, open your wallet, look inside. And, like, he pulls out his wallet. Then, like, Sean gets lifted away. (laughs) Yeah, which is, like, an amazing image. Right, like, in my head, it's a funny joke. But my thought is also just that, like, once you introduce Sean at that point in the story, and then he disappears for another 30 pages and then comes back, it's just kind of like, why, why did we go through that trouble in the first place. Yeah, but there are interesting c- contrasts and similarities. I think that the the strength of the older draft is the fantasy sequences are very different, and I think this is probably a good time to talk about how the fantasy sequences we get in the movie mm. are 
in the movie. Yeah, I, I think, at odds with the rest of the movie. Yeah, I, my biggest the screenplay is lumpy for this movie is the only way to describe it. Yeah. But my biggest issue I think is that the magic realism in this movie is terrible. I legitimately think it's poorly executed all around. So there's a couple of different reasons. One is the fact that this movie is very top heavy in terms of fantasy sequences. Yeah. And after like the first 45 minutes or so, we don't really get any other fantasy sequences. Again, the defining trait of this character, Walter Mitty, is the guy likes fantasy sequences. Guy imagines fantasies. And you don't get that pretty much, I think, after the scene where Cheryl sings. Yeah, you get the... the yeah, you're right. That is the last scene. Cheryl time. birds. Right. Oh, that's that's true. That's true. You get the vision of her as birds. The oh, birds that's right. forming into her face and in the sky. there is still moments where, like, he sees her... He sees the text message um, <sighs> on the, the mouth. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily know if that's supposed to be a fantasy sequence, so much as it is an interesting visual device to yeah. show a text message. It's still magical realism in the same way yeah. that seeing a face and a flock of birds. I, I guess, but to me, like, that's not a whole lot different than if you just had text floating above the screen being like... Hey, it's I me, your know. coworker. Get back to work. I found that to be meaningfully different because it wasn't just a text popping up. He's seeing it on the side of a mountain. It's yeah, not really that he's looking at it. Was thinking of right because like the, it's to, it's to me it's the same as whenever he is going to the Himalayas and you have the diary entries like floating across the screen. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't see it like that. Anyway, just because like I don't see that as being appreciative. There is a difference because you are being shown this is a diary entry. Whereas- yeah, but it's the same thing that here's what if I'm saying like what is a fantasy of Walters and what is not like. When he's he, not fantasizing about he's not like, fantasizing about seeing a text message on the mountain. Message. He's yeah. not fantasizing also about when he walks to the airport and they're like the motto of life appears in the various bits of the airport. That's not him fantasizing. That's just like the director and the DP being clever and, and like wanting to remind you of. I think it thing. could be both. All right. Anyway, sure. Difference of opinion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but I don't see why. Why is that impossible? Well, it's not impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that I, I, I don't. We don't consider it to be. a Yeah. Like, I, I think by sequence. and large, my point is that by and large, the fantasy sequences in this movie end after about 45 minutes. Yeah. That is my point. You yeah. can we can quote a lot whether or not this text matches is fantasy, but the fact of the matter is it's not a fantasy sequence in the sense that it def- it expands upon Walter as a character. That's yeah. In this version of the script, in this older version of the script, the fantasy sequences are kind of happening throughout the entire movie. So you've got a lot more. You've got like yeah. a bizarre sequence at the end where he imagines himself was a cubicle, however the fuck that might have looked in actual, There's you know, There's also execution. one where everyone is Morgan Freeman. Right, there's one, right, yeah. There's also there's, one where everyone is, when they talk about their dream jobs and he sees everyone in New York City as, like, astronauts and, like, firefighters and, like, yeah. other typical dream jobs, which is kind of fun. And then there's, like, one normal dad. Right, yeah, yeah. So was, uh, that was a, that was interesting. Yeah, and I also, the one you had talked about earlier that I like, too, is whenever he's talking about, like, things, he's talking on the phone with Todd, I think is what starts it, where he's talking about, like, things that he does well or that are interesting, yeah. and Walter says, like, well, I've never been late coming back from lunch, and Todd's like, well, that's not exactly like you completed the tour de France He's talking to a coworker. Oh, that's right, a coworker, yeah. yeah. And he's like, well, it's not exactly like you completed the tour de France, and Walter's like, yeah, I guess you're right. And then he, like, you see him on the subway yeah. coming back, and as he's, like, coming back to work on time after lunch, everyone is acting as though he has just <laughs> finished the tour de France. <laughs> number of fresh of Frenchmen. <laughs> yeah, and they're like all like cheering and yeah, chanting for like him and everything. Him the yeah, back and like yeah. shoving Gatorade down his throat. Yeah, which that that I I, I liked that a lot. Yeah, and then I, and there are some inexplicable ones where like he imagines an enormous monstrous Cheryl <laughs> like in the ocean. Got it. Right, like it, like it's just it's, it's one of those things where it's like this feels like I'm looking into like someone's Pornhub history and I don't really want to watch it. <laughs> it's odd. Yeah, but anyway, it's. There are that is right. That is, I think, what that version does better. Yeah, I think going back to the idea also that this is a movie that has been um, poked at and prodded at by various writers and creative teams for the like twenty years or whatever. Mm-hmm. It remind it does feel a little bit like there are certain elements of the version that we see that are in there because they were in previous drafts of the script and people were not realizing at the time like why it's important or why you want to keep it and it was just sort of there because it was like well the previous version had this piano being here so like. I guess we'll keep the piano there. 
Uh, I guess we'll get rid yeah. of it because it shows growth as a character, but you're not really thinking about like Why? what leads to that, right? Yeah. So it's it, it's like in a macro sense, this reminds me of something like Toys, where it is someone's passion project for years, and it keeps getting rewritten and rethought and reconceived until like the version you end up with, like it makes sense to someone, mm-hmm. but I'm not entirely getting what they're seeing here. Yeah, like I'm sure that the fifth or sixth screenwriter came to this, and it was maybe more of a mess than it is now, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, there's this piano. I guess I gotta make sense of why this piano is right. so important. And, like, that's why there are people who came on and don't really understand who invented the piano idea in the first place, but <coughs> feel beholden to it because it's right. what they read. Right, right. The piano's a big part of the script. Yeah. Here we go, we gotta keep the piano. Yeah. And it's not bad that it's in the movie, but it is no, just it's like... No, it's just like, it's not well thought out. It kind of, yeah. Well, it ends up being dead weight in the movie that we saw because... Yeah, it's not... D- d- by it's, the end of it, it's still yeah. not delivered well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dismissed <laughs> out of Literally. hand by the end, yeah. and whatever significance it could have had as a symbol or through line like it could have it's, stood it's for this like you said like a final connection that they have to the dead father nope yeah yeah it really this. should be a metaphor for the dad I think yes I like it in the movie in the draft of the screenplay where it seems to sort of represent how he's able to take care for his family which yeah. I think both are fine no, yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is really it should be a metaphor for something it should be a metaphor for something yeah <laughs> and we don't yeah. quite get what it is well, especially but, like, if we're gonna if we're gonna keep returning to right the, and like know. my thought was because the, the weird thing is I didn't even realize it until we were watching it the second time you pointed out that when he comes back from um, Greenland and Iceland it's in his apartment for whatever reason like of course it's his apartment but for whatever yeah. reason I thought it was their mom's apartment oh. and you see the piano in his living room and like my thought was that initially is that like in the beginning of the movie whenever they're trying to fit the piano in her apartment and they can't fit it in mm-hmm. Walter should be like well let's just put it in my place for now we can leave it there for now and like th- there should be so much like visual business made <laughs> of the fact that like he has this tiny square apartment and there's this enormous piano like almost crushing him and like if you want to play up the fantasy aspect of it maybe have this piano like literally growing larger yeah. every time he comes back into the point that like it's basically smothering him and so like that's you know and that could be a Which metaphor way? for the burden he feels it could be a metaphor for like the pressure that his dying dad placed upon him take the, it could be like wow look how much of my this grief I still have unresolved. Right. My father is taking up my space. I they do slightly set up that it's his apartment, but they move through the establishment of it too quickly for it to really stick. Right, and but, but because, so like in that conversation in the beginning, uh, not in the beginning, but in one of the earlier scenes with the mom and Odessa, uh, Shirley MacLaine is like, or uh, he says something like, "Just stay at my place until the villa's open," and she's like, oh, "Are you sure I'm not going to be cramping your style?" Right, no, and, and, and like, in retrospect, yes, of course this is apartment. If Fredo's just didn't click with me at the time. But, like, the fact that they went through the trouble of actually putting the piano in his apartment and no one thought to think that, like, is this a metaphor? Let's address it. the thing. The script, maybe this is, like, a director failure because the script does call out. Specifically, there's, like, an action line about the piano sort of dwarfing his living room and him being I almost crushed that, yes. by the piano. Yeah. So, like, I think that there was meant to be a more of a to-do about the visual of his piano being in there. And I think that the shot of it is you can see the sort of, like, sort of galley kitchen and the wall mm-hmm. between that and the living room. And you can see that the piano is, like, very Big. tight. Right. It, it's I, kept, like, very much in frame. Yeah. I just think that they didn't do a good enough job of highlighting it or playing with it. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I forget exactly why we're talking about the piano at this point. But we were talking about... The I, was just, I was just talking about, like, again, how, like, it was like a toy scenario for me. How, like, yes. this, this, mm-hmm. this, you well, know, oh, you, yeah. you, you cling onto bits of the screenplay and yeah. you embellish things and get rid of other things until eventually, like, you just have this thing that made sense at one point. But then when you sort of, like, film it as written and put it on screen, there are a lot of, like, frayed edges. And yeah, like yeah. So, the well, it makes what? like pieces of things that don't necessarily go with each yeah. other because they came from version three and four and ten. 
Yeah, so what I was going to say is that I, I do think that that's kind of like an inevitable result of this, is anything that goes on for this long, you're yeah. going to end up in this messy situation where too many people's hands have been on it. And right, and, and I think also it's important to note real quick is that like sort of the driving force behind this being a movie was Samuel Goldwyn Jr., mm-hmm. whose father, Samuel Goldwyn, was the producer of the original Walter Mitty, so like he kind of wanted to remake this for a long time. Yeah. So it would not surprise me again if like he was sort of the, you know, the overriding factor in this getting made, and therefore you might not necessarily be able to go in as a writer and be like, I'm going to throw away everything we've done before and start fresh because this guy who has been attached to this thing for so long might be like, well, you don't have to do that. Just like, just make this better. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about the fantasy sequences a little deep dive and just talk about the difference between what we had in the script that we read versus what we get in the movie. So what we get in the movie are very broad, uh, unrelated to like anything happening in the movie, sort of like sketches. Like I guess they're supposed to have some kind of emotional connection, vaguely to what's going on. I don't and think so. Some of them do. They're some too of wacky. them do. Most right, of them are they, too wacky. I mean, it's a very flimsy connection because, like I said, the one that I brought up earlier is the Adam Scott sequence in yeah. the elevator, where he's in an elevator with Adam Scott. He has. I'm sorry. Do we ever say like who plays who in this fucking movie? No, but Brian uh, Fuller's Walter Mitty. Adam yeah, Scott is Adam Scott is his douchebag boss with a terrible yeah. beard. And so is his love interest. Yeah, yeah. and so. So they're they're running the elevator together and Adam Scott's like, what, what are you bringing a fucking toy into the office? Like you can't bring a toy into the office. And like it segues into a fantasy in this in the way that like you're not exactly sure like at what point it starts to be a fantasy sequence. Yeah. Where like Adam Scott eventually is like, no, you can't have a toy in the office. Like, give me your toy. Yeah. And like it starts with them like fighting to the point that they like fall out of the elevator. Like they break the wall of yeah. the elevator, fall, fall outside. Yeah. And they have this elaborate Scott Pilgrim-esque fight sequence mm-hmm. where they're like sliding around on concrete and they're like they each have one side of Stretch Armstrong and Stretch. Armstrong is like holding them together and Stretch Armstrong comes to life and his little face is like and he pulls them yeah. together. And they sort of do like a Dragon Ball Z like that, punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that punch thing, that really reminded me of Scott Pilgrim. That kind of like zooming yeah. like wind yeah. going very, very, yeah, very, very sort of frantic in like video game. Yeah. yeah. And so like that's... I mean, like, that's kind of, like, it for me, right? Because I feel like when I was telling you guys that the way a fantasy sequence should work, if you pet, if you write the script and you were like, fantasy sequence happens here, it would be like, they get into a fight in the elevator, and then, like, Ben Stiller gets the upper hand because he's so much cooler and so much better than Adam Scott. Yeah. And, like, when the elevator door opens, they're on the floor of Life magazine, and he throws Adam Scott into the middle of the floor, and all his coworkers are like, yeah, way to go, Ben Stiller. And he's like, and we're not going to go online. We're going to keep publishing this forever, right? And Adam Scott's like, yes, sir, I'm so sorry. But, like... It's not that. Just a goofy sequence of them fighting over a toy. Yeah, well, for me, the real... The worst offender yeah, is agreed. Benjamin Button one. So yes. there's a sequence Ugh. where he's, like, about to say goodbye to Cheryl's been helping him sort of workshop or figure out where this negative could be. And then, at some point, she's talking about something, and he sort of drifts off, and... She's like, well, I gotta go now. And he's like, well, I just realized... She's, she's like, oh, she's gonna go see her ex-husband. And right. she's like, well, like, I don't want to see my ex-husband. I realize I want to be with you. Yeah. And he's like, well, I, I have that Benjamin Button disease. And then it's this absurd sequence where he's like, I don't, I haven't seen the movie, but I think it's like you get older and get smaller or right. something. Or you become a giant old baby. I don't yeah. know. But I, but that's what I have. It's, it's a tough... Well, so I actually... And then, I'll, also, it's not just that, but keep going. Fast forward. Yes. Two. This wacky SNL, like, cozy yeah. little cottage, and he, it's like a puppet, tiny... And they're blasting them with this, like, sunset light. It, yeah. it looks horrifying. I fucking hate it so much. And it's, like, really, really bad, broad dialogue where she's like, it's nice that you found your little doll. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. And he says, like, I got it at a doll store or something like, like that. Really spooky. Yeah. Okay, so... And then I, she says, like, 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 put your head, like, on... Nestle in here and die. Nestle in here and die. Yeah. <laughs> uh... 
I think what also made it feel, it felt very SNL-y just in the way it looked, mm-hmm. in just the pointlessness of the joke, the kind of the weirdness of that. But I also, like, Kristen Wiig does great work, but her presence also sold that to me as an SNL skin. Yeah, just like, admittedly. oh, wow, this does seem like right. something you would might have gotten saddled with on a special host store. <laughs> exactly. Um, I really hate that sequence. The only part I found funny about it was I do kind of like where he was like, I actually don't know how it works. Yeah. I didn't see the movie. Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. I, I, I think, think it's a about. funny joke, but my point is always that if he doesn't know what happens in the movie, he doesn't <laughs> care about the movie. Why is he having this dream sequence? Like, you would think, like, again, the obvious thing is it's just like a generic rom-com, like yeah. 500 Days of Summer bullshit, yeah. right? Where he's like walking through the park with her and all the, like, the cartoon birds are chirping. Like, whatever. It doesn't have to be quite that dumb. But like, that's the obvious way to go. But instead they're like, wouldn't it be fucking hilarious if he was like yeah. a little old baby? The way it reads to me that whole Benjamin Button sequence. I think even if someone had mentioned Benjamin Button to him like earlier in the movie and that's why I still wouldn't like it just because it's un- it's an unpleasant viewing experience that whole skit. Yeah. Um, but it reads to me like someone maybe it wasn't Ben Stiller maybe it was someone else but they were like Oh, this is our chance, guys. We can just do these really hilarious skits. Wouldn't it be so great if we just did a Benjamin Button thing? Yeah, I don't know whose idea it was, but it does feel like... Um, I mean, because again, I think Ben Stiller is interested in and capable of doing, you know, more naturalistic, heavier stuff. But he also is the guy that that came up with Zoolander. Yeah. And so maybe he was at odds with himself. Maybe he was at odds with the screenwriter. I don't know. But somebody was, like, confusing this production. Because the script... This is the thing, the script doesn't have these crazy, absurd, broad comedy sequences. Right. The fantasy sequences mm-hmm. are connected to things that happen in the story, for the most part, and have the same sort of wry, understated, subtle humor that the rest of the movie has, that mm-hmm. the movie get. For example, the Tour de France one happens very naturally after someone talks about the Tour de France. Right. And he sort of envisions as if mm-hmm. what if coming home from, what if coming back from the office uh, yeah. was the, time yeah, was, was like, like the winning Tour the Tour de, de France. France. Yeah. And, there's like, uh, I was the other one that I really liked, but there's another one that was on a similar vein. Although it wasn't even a fantasy sequence, but there's one where he like kayaks into a, a triathlon in progress. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was yeah. in the middle of the other, it, it was after fantasizing about Cheryl in the water, which is weird, odd, yeah. uh, and her son. Uh, I like that it fades out back into reality in a scene that is equally surreal because mm-hmm. he's kayaking into Iceland by interrupting a triathlon so like all these swimmers are going past him it's like sorry and they're all like they're all like happy about it and so it's like this confusing moment of like where did the fantasy end and where did reality begin yeah they're stitched together more naturally that way they are I mean like too, I, too naturally because yeah. it is confusing that, no I, I agree there are various points in that version of the screenplay where I could not tell if it was actually happening and let, but like Similarly to that, can I say, there was a part of me when I was watching this movie the first time with you guys the other day, where I was like, is this entire movie going to be a dream sequence? Like, at the <laughs> end, like, because, like, so many ludicrous things happen, quote-unquote, in reality, right? Yeah. Like, there's the fight with the sharks. Yeah. The fact that, like, the he volcano. goes... Well, that, and, like, the fact he goes to Greenland, and there's a Papa John's there, which we had mentioned previously. Iceland. Like, uh, yeah, Iceland, sorry. Yeah. There's, a, there's, like, a fucking Papa John's in Iceland, which is something he referenced before. When he's at the bar in Greenland, he's meeting, like, this enormous oaf with a big beard. Like, mm-hmm. is that, like, his Love Adam Scott? Guy analog like is he think is he viewing like adam scott because he's like this smarmy asshole with a ridiculous beard that he's like projecting a version of adam scott and so then like the i I kept thinking the entire time like is it going to come out the end that like he actually never went to greenland and iceland and he was always there and and, like maybe this is a version where like you could do it was all a dream and make it work because the, the the hook is not that the fact that like Boy, it's done that it was all a dream, but the fact that he went on this dream sequence, learned something about himself, comes mm-hmm. back to the real world, and, like, is able to process things, is able to grow up, is able to function as an adult, whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. And so, like, I was really kind of waiting the entire time. And, like, cut back to him at the office, like, sitting in his cube, and being like, 
Oh. <laughs> so that's what it'd be like if I went to Greenland. Would that have been better? I, I don't know. I think it would have been more consistent. Do you it would have been more never... consistent, I, but I I do predict I would feel slightly annoyed if they were like, and it I was I all a dream. See, I, Unless I, it was done really well. I, I think okay. I, if it was done well. I agree with you on paper that it's all a dream is almost always a fucking cop-out, but I, like I said, I think the reason why it could work if you did it well is he comes away from this having learned something or changed yeah. in some way, and this like affects how he is in reality. Almost like a... Um... It's like a Wizard of Oz thing. Yeah, kind of like that. But Dorothy doesn't learn a whole. Dorothy's just like, you know what, Kansas ain't that bad. Yeah, it's fine. Boring. It should never leave ever. Yeah. Can I also, I, I just want to talk about the quintessence of life real quick. All so right, like, let me just say something real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I, on a similar vein, before I forget it, uh, to what you're talking about, it all being a dream sequence. Yeah. Something that I think that they never draw enough attention to or, or make a focus of, at some point, in the draft or in the movie, at some point, somebody decided to make him uh, a person who handles like these negatives that come in, mm-hmm. they're basically like big cover photos, epic, you know, brave journalism, like, you know, from all over the world, just things that are, people want to see in magazines. Yeah, just great photos. So, like, yeah. his job, that this man who, like, doesn't have enough of a rich life and, and maybe dreams of adventure is to, like, look at all of these, like, photos. Right, to catalog, yeah, yeah, adventures, So, like, basically. he sees so much fantasy mm-hmm. in his everyday life that he has to, like, see from a distance. Right. And I don't think, they, we never talk about that enough. Mm-mm. No. Probably should. Yeah. That, that also kind of for me ties into the fact that they work at Life magazine in the first place, where yeah. it feels like you work at Life because it's, like, it's it's a joke. It, like, you know, you're, you're it's Life. The magazine is yeah. Life magazine. Right. Like, remember the Life motto? It isn't works it, like, okay, Isn't it I guess. so like, ironic yeah. that he works at life, but he hasn't been living his. Right. Like, that just feels like, uh, okay. It's a little it's okay. a little obvious. Yeah. I feel, I felt, there were moments where the obviousness got a little much for me that I wish that it had been a little more artfully played. Like, right. yeah. that for me, the fact that they work at life, I don't hate that in concept of like, they work for a magazine, but I just think the fact that it's life is that, but I feel like that's on the same level with Patton Oswald's haven't you ever been anywhere interesting? Yeah. I don't know. I just Questions? feel like if this movie was maybe made 10 years ago and was like 10% more modeling, that there, there would have been a line in the trailer featured in the movie that would be like somebody saying like, you've your job is to look at all these photographs yeah, of exactly. adventure, and you've never had an adventure or, yourself, Walter Mitty. Or that, that, that would have been... This <laughs> is Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would have been the VO on the yeah. trailer. Yeah. No, it would have been Meet like, a man but it would have been who like works that life. The specter of his dad or something. Right, right, right. Um, I think talking a little bit about what you, you had mentioned, Chris, um, and I talked about this with Lee, I think, while you were out of the room for a minute. Um, the, all these um, enormous blow, blown-up um, covers of Life magazine that you see throughout the office... Uh, I thought that it would make sense if, like, all of these directly correlated to a fantasy sequence. Me too. Which, because, like, it happens a little, because one of the covers is, like, a shark. And right. so I was like, ah, so the shark plays in. And then you also have, like, a cover of Marilyn Monroe. So right. maybe he imagines Kristen Wiig as Marilyn Monroe. I was, I mean, not to tip my fixture early, but that is something. Late for that. That is something I bring up, just because I thought that was a massive missed opportunity. The fact that they have so many different distinct images from so many different times and places, mm-hmm. that's such a natural portal to fantasizing and what's weird I found was the first time I watched it I thought I misunderstood what was going on in that um, very brief fantasy moment where he like busts through the wall and he's Kristen uh, Wiig's Spanish lover yeah. mm-hmm. from in, like, in the Arctic or whatever I initially thought that he was busting out of a picture of someone who was doing that and that's why that was happening but no which I was like what the fuck like, how well, no one think of this right yeah yeah, yeah. Um, the quintessence of life then so the reveal obviously mm-hmm. at the end he sees the photo that he went through all this trouble to get it's a picture of him looking at photos in front of the time life building mm-hmm. did that surprise you at all did it surprise anyone at all First of all, I just want to say... That it was him? Yeah. The first time I watched it, I wasn't surprised, but I also, by that point, was like, 
And this could literally be anything. Well, okay. So I, I was, what my initial thought was that it was going to somehow be a photo, like maybe the photo somehow of him and his dad that we saw earlier. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it would be a picture of like his mom. Well, I mean, Sean took that picture. Right. No, what I'm saying is like maybe it was a photo oh. of like his mom looking at that picture or something. And so it's like what life means to people or something yeah, like yeah. that. Like, I don't know, some dumb bullshit, right? I had told you it literally threw me when they show the photo of Walter Mitty looking at the photos because like I thought that Sean had somehow taken a picture of an event that happened. <laughs> after the fact yeah it was just like for a minute i was like like running through the time and like like what, 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 what <laughs> so like for me i don't know what a better version of that ending is because i think it just becomes so patently obvious going into it that like it's gonna be a photo of walter mitty somehow it's gonna be a photo that involves walter mitty in some place could be a group photo where it shows mm-hmm. all the employees could just be a photo of walter mitty one way or the other his mug's gonna end up on the final issue of Life magazine. I, I mean, guess. I don't really care that it's obvious. I just, I, I, it's not that I care that it's obvious. I care that the movie has placed so much emphasis on this and like, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? He won't even look at it. What is it gonna be? So it's just kind of like, by the time it happens, to me, it is an anticlimax. I agree, but I think for a different reason. For me, it was an anticlimax because by the time you see the cover, I feel like the emotional journey is done. Because for me, the sort of an afterthought. Well, right, the photo was, right. was well, like, like was like the inciting incident that is kind of the MacGuffin that sets the plot off. But and again, this is cheesy and somewhat obvious. But I, I believe the journey was legitimately more interesting than the goal. Right. So maybe there's also a version of this where you just never see the cover. Yeah, like, that's fine. I would love that. I think that you. Or like Kristen, Kristen Wiig's like, should we go look at it? And he's like, you know what? No, like I, I've lived life. I, I think it's. I think it. it would be okay if you had the cover and it was Walter Mitty, but he didn't look at it, and the movie just pans to it. Okay. Um, that could work. But here's the thing. I think this is another issue of muddled draft and muddled message. Mm-hmm. I, Samuel Goldwyn Jr. talked about um, wanting to find worth in some the, the everyday work that people do, mm-hmm. and I very much think that that was tied to the decision to have the end be Walter Mitty's the cover of Life magazine because it's a very obvious like. Everyday work was right. important. These are the oh boy. You okay? Yeah. It's it, right. No, like like these are the people who make life matter. Yeah. I don't want to say it's at odds with what happens in the rest of the movie per se, but it feels like it's a little bit at odds with the sense that this character realizes that what he has to do to live life is actually live life mm-hmm. and not do these menial things that he was doing. So like I feel like your yeah. moral can I be agree. right. Your your moral can be that like these people who do these things that seem small and insignificant they matter, or your moral can be don't fantasize about life, go out and live it. And it feels like this movie wants to do both of those yeah. things. Well, I also, of them I also think that the message of him of finding, you know, worth in in the mundane things people do is modeled because you also are sort of doing that with the piano. Yes. And the mother, yeah. But then you sell the piano in the end. Right. Like, so what the fuck are you... Yeah. I think that it would have been better or more interesting if we got more of a sense of what working at life was like for him because the only interactions we really see... Or, like, he has some friends at work, he has Cheryl, and then the new boss guy is just beating up on him all the time. Yeah. I would like to know what his life was at life in general. And I want to know what kind of community that was, because then I would actually care about life ending. That's Because at this point, I don't. And I feel like there is an assumption on the part of the writing here that I'm supposed to take it as rote that this is a tragedy that life is closing, that we're losing something important. And that we are supposed to feel really good about, like, Walter pursuing this thing in the name of this final cover. But I don't know what Um, life is to anyone. I'm smiling because you just gave me gold. You don't even know it. (laughs) What do you mean? You're like a drunken prospector. Giving out gold and not aware of it. Gold for everyone! (laughs) 
So I was trying to think of, like, what would be a better picture for the quintessence of life, and I would have loved if it was a picture of Adam Scott's character. <laughs> it was like a memo from Sean being like, you really get what Life Magazine's about, Adam Scott. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fix right there. Sure, do you know or what, what if, quintessence means? Or, or what if Sean was like, no, it was the thumb. You need to get back there. Get that thumb on Life Magazine. I mean, that thumb was available to him. Before. <laughs> yeah. Could have gotten that thumb. Yeah. I mean, he said it was inside. Do you um, want to do like a character lightning round real quick? Yeah, well, yeah. let's do acting. Ben Stiller. I, I think Adam Sc- or no, I thought Adam Scott. I think Ben Stiller is fine in this movie. I yeah. think the character of Walter is terribly written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Walter is a sad sack who has almost no redeeming qualities. Qualities, aside from a slavish devotion to his job. I don't know that I fully agree with you. I agree that there's elements that uh, are not carried off well, but I think that Ben Stiller does a decent job. Um, I think that the character's better in the old Lord Raft. I agree with that. I think Ben Stiller does a great job with a thin character. And I think yeah. every, I think a lot of people in this movie do a great job with a thin character. I think a lot of the sad sackiness is external people shitting on him mm-hmm. and just him moping. I think that if you take away the mopey face, that he appears less sad. Yeah. That's um, probably, I, again, why, why I would cut Adam Scott's character entirely from this. Yeah. He does a good job. He plays comedy and drama both yeah. quite well. I mean, he's, yeah. he's a good actor. He I mean, still displays some of the dry wit that I think the Walter Mitty of the script, the Walter script. Right, was. but I think it's in short supply. We need it is in short supply, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, do, I sort of appreciate his, like, um, entrance into a wider world and the, the way he interacts with the people he meets. But I... I will say we'll get to them, but I'm more interested in the the random people he meets. So Kristen Wiig, I guess I feel like is the next. Uh, she's fine. I think that she, I, again, yeah. she's very authentic. I, I I like Kristen Wiig a lot. I think again, her character is basically like 0.5 dimensional mm-hmm. as a character. Um, sounds good. Seeing Space Oddity. Yeah. Pretty good. Singer, There's not a lot. Yeah, I, I guess I would agree. I think the Cheryl in the script rang, rang a bit different than the one we get in the movie. I agree with that. I also like also like Cheryl in the previous draft is like. Even more of a non-entity, if that's possible. Like yeah, she, she appears less. Right. Like, like it's almost <laughs> really? it's difficult yes. to imagine a version of Cheryl that matters less, and somehow they crack it that. It really nuts. doesn't more less about. It's more about his family in the script than yeah. it's about Cheryl. Which is almost interesting like, because it could I be would find so I, like maybe it should just be about his family. I would honestly like more of both, but I actually think for as little as we get of Cheryl as a character, I I think similar to Ben Stiller, Kristen Wiig has an even thinner character and. Yeah. I was looking forward to the times we would see her because I thought she did a lot with a little. Like, she had great little moments. She made good choices. Yeah. I thought that um, she acted this kind of, like, you saw where she connected with Walter. You saw where she was perhaps maybe even in this position at some point in her life. But Mm -hmm. I get the sense that she has been more proactive about chasing the things that she wants yeah. than him. He hasn't gotten there yet. Right. I mean, there's the, there's the one line that she mentions where she's taking a class on how to write a mystery yeah. novel, which she then, like, uses to be like, like let's figure out what, like, what the clues but are. She, but then it comes, but then it never comes up again. Yeah. Well, well, she gets like, she says, well, there's the thumb and a thing and water. Like, yeah, and so it, it's like a joke, and then yeah. we, like, move on and forget about the fact that it matters. Uh, Adam Scott is not great. No. He's fine as a person. Yeah, again, it, again, it, it's every everything is coming down to the character yeah, itself, the char- not the actor. I mean, Adam Scott's character is the worst offender of badly written characters. I, I, yeah, Adam Scott is literally like his character is the worst 
part of this movie, I yeah. think, for me. Like, he just shows up. He's immediately, like, like this high school bully. Like, he just shows yeah. up, like, he might as well be, like, pantsing Ben Stiller in the you cafeteria or something. You don't understand how he ended up in this place. No, and he's just, like, such an immediate asshole to this yeah. guy. Like, he immediately, like, it's like he senses a weakness, and it's just like, yeah. this is the one I have to bring there's, down. There's no way that you are a person whose job it is to handle aggressive mergers with a lot of and this is uh, what redundancy, you and you're this much of an asshole in the company meeting to be like, all right, I'm clapping because I want you to go now. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. the fuck? No, and again, I think that's also probably ties into, like, why I, you, you think that, like, a lot of this is being told through Walter Mitty's eyes rather than, like, actually happening. But right. I, no, this is this is actually happening. Uh, this That actually reminds me of something I want to bring up, and I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Brendan, you mentioned how it's, it bugged you slightly that he kind of gets the idea to go on this first big trip yeah. from Cheryl. Yeah. I similarly feel that way about um, Adam Scott's character needing to be this pressure to, like, force him to go out and find this thing. I think it's a much more interesting idea if he builds himself up into making that choice. Yeah, well, I, I mean, in the original in the original draft of the screenplay, it's worth noting that Charles doesn't give him the idea to go. He yeah. gives himself the idea, right? Which I think is a stronger choice. Yeah, the, the way I, I will say again, if Cheryl is more of a sketch in the, that draft, I like the fact that they know each other going into yeah. it, and that he's With not like immediately trying. The first thing you see is not him trying to like hit on her mm-hmm. without having ever spoken to her before in his life. Uh, on eHarmony, by the way, guys, sign up for an eHarmony account. They're really great. <laughs> Pat Oswalt will call you and help you work your shit out. Yeah. From here on, I think this is where the movie shines the most. Is you get like when he starts to travel, you get these like bizarre rolling cast of characters that come right. in and out. I don't know where they find these people, but like the the pilot is amazing. He does this like really amazing Stephen Wright esque performance yes. of this like really deadpan, drunk, like belligerent. Helicopter pilot. Yeah. That's one of the best, the funniest scenes is where he's like, doing karaoke, he's mad because he cheated on his girlfriend and she broke up with him, so he's all depressed. And there's a storm coming in and he's like, he's like, yeah, you want to come with me? I'm just going to finish my beer and I get in a helicopter. And he's like, you're going to do that? And then flying. he's like, yeah, well, I'm kind of nervous about the storms. Thought I'd get a couple beers in me. <laughs> just, just like one of my favorite lines. I, I agree that it's a good joke and I've talked about this before about like why I hate that scene so yes. much. The fact that like, it's the movie's basically saying like, wouldn't it be an adventure to get into a helicopter with a drunk pilot? I think if you made that scene less about uh, just do it, sort of like have adventure and more about like, this is what he needs to do to proceed. I, I think if he were less overtly drunk, it might be funny. Like, yeah. if he were one of those, like, enormous guys who can hold his liquor very well. And so you still see him, like, <laughs> drinking, but he's not like, I gotta get some more beers. Yeah, just- yeah he was good. Everyone else that he meets out there is pretty amazing. Like, I love the captain of that boat. Where, yeah. Where he's like, I mean, say what you want about that scene, but like, he's, he's like, lined up like, don't worry, it's a porpoise. Yeah. We're, we're traveling with a porpoise. <laughs> he's like, oh, no, that's a shark. And, and I feel like oh, he's like, stop befriending it. Yeah, stop befriending it. Get it. <laughs> and then he just gets on the boat and he's like, can we like radio? And he's like, no, you dropped, you <laughs> jumped into the ocean without radio components. Correct. Correct. <laughs> he's just like really bemused. And then the guy who gives him the cake later uh, also has his turn. Yeah. That being, guy being good. like, well, we can't use the radio. Like, no, yeah. well, we have to land an ice tomorrow because you jumped into the ocean without radio components. <laughs> But that guy was weird, and he's like, yeah, I'm probably on Facebook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shadow yeah. Cuddle gave me some great Instagram tips. <laughs> he calls them home slice. Yeah. Uh, that guy was great. I like the uh, the Icelandic innkeeper who, like, comes yes. back together, and he, like, is trying to explain to him that there's no... But he, like, knows very little English. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I, lo- ghost. I love all the frustration yeah. he has. <laughs> in- I actually thought that actor had a really cool moment, and it was funny, but also really interesting to watch, where you see him being flustered and losing his grip of English, as yeah. he's, like, trying to, like, oh, fuck, like, what is the word? I just need to tell him. Because he's, like, clearly freaking out and just wanting to be like, get in the fucking car, yeah. we need to go. Yeah. But, yeah, everyone else was great. There's this, there's there, not really any acting involved, but there are these two, like, guides that are helping him get up a mountain at one point, and there, it's, like, this wordless dialogue scene where, like, 
they're communicating that like Ben Stiller can go on, but they they're, they're like not this is as to. far yeah, as they yeah. go, and they're like just doing hand gestures. And there's really good foley work of like yeah, the the coat swishing, yeah, yeah the coat swishing as they're yeah. like all gesturing. It um, actually felt a bit like Fatal Instinct, like yeah, the yeah. sort of the episode of the hand gestures. Yeah. They're like doing like spirals of like, yeah, yeah. Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine, she was, you know, she's fine. Yeah. Uh, Again, I, Shirley MacLaine and Catherine Hahn are underused. I, I mean, Catherine Hahn, I think, is egregiously, like, flimsy as a character. Like, yeah, I hate they her, give her next to nothing well, to do. Well, I mean, the thing is that what they give her just throws me through a loop, where I, I guess she's supposed to be sort of, like, this woman child who can't get her shit together, and, like, I couldn't tell, like, is it a joke that she's, like, 40 years old and playing Rizzo and Grease? Like, I get that it's a joke, but it's like, is it a joke that informs her character? Right. The fact that she's, like, 40 years old and playing a high school and student? And I guess kind I don't know that it is, honestly. Um, but, but, like, she makes a little bit more sense in an earlier draft of the script that we read, but, like, she's still just, like, so flimsy mm-hmm. as a character. It's, 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 it's hard to watch I, again, someone I like so much. I think I legitimately was wondering if she was mentally, like, incompetent in some fashion. I think that's not, not a reach, honestly, to she, wonder that. She gives him a toy, like a stretch right, toy. Right. It's like, this is what you want, right? And she right. seems, like, genuinely excited about it. Right, and it also seems like, but, like, that also, like, doesn't seem like it connects to anything, right? Like, I feel like you never see him, like, talking about Stretch Armstrong or well, something. And, like, if there was a picture, like, my take, my extrapolation off of that was that was supposed to be indicative of, like, some, like, thing they had together as a, as as kids. Like, that was hearkening back to some kind of moment where they connected. See, my take is that she has no clue what he wants. Yeah. Um, and, she and so she's, and she's, she's going off of what he remembers, what she remembers uh, yeah, from wanting like 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like again, if you were doing a version of this movie that plays up the family and like tones down the whole Cheryl thing is maybe that's what sort of kicks him off on some way. Is he like, he's reminded of like something that brought him joy as a kid yeah. where she brings him this and she's like, remember you used to have these as a kid. Like you fucking loved it. You brought it everywhere. And then like, you know, you got rid of it and he sees it and is like, Oh, I, my, my child spirit is awakening yeah. inside of me. Blah, blah, blue. Blah, blah, blue. Uh, yeah. Shirley MacLaine. I mean, I, I do kind of like the mom character. I'm a little confused by her. It's worse than the draft of the screenplay because you get the sense that she's not supposed to be, like, totally loony and wacky, that she's supposed to be, like, somewhat sage-like yeah. and sort of understand everything that Ultimate's done. That does not come off well in the earlier draft at yeah. all. In the newer one, she kind of does, she, but she, but she's kind of walking this line between being, like, a sort of daffy old mom and being, like, an a, a actual motherly right. sage-like figure, where she's like, you know, I always, that, like, monologue she has where she's like, you always, you worked at that that father, but had a that, father-like yeah. name. Yeah, and yeah. Papa John is like, I just thought, would it, was that sad for you to work at a place that reminded you of your dead dad? Yeah. yeah. I, I, what a well, which, which I think is also, going through all of that, and then having her, like, midway through be like, oh yeah, Sean Penn was here, we talked about photography, took a picture yeah. of my piano. Like, the first time I saw it, I was literally like, like, is she, like, is she imagining this? Like, was he actually there? Yeah. And, like, because it is just such a wildly improbable turn for me that the movie takes, where it's like, oh yeah, by the way, Sean Penn was looking for you, I talked to him, I told you about it, like, two weeks ago, you weren't listening, though. Like, that, I, I fucking hate that so much. But, like, it, it takes such a long time for me to swallow that pill, that mm. I'm just, like, like, trying to, like, work it through in my head like but but why was he there why was he talking to her it also comes in an intense rush of um plot expediency all coming from the mom well yeah i mean because i mean she's telling him about sean she's telling about warlords i mean right it's it, it reads to me like they were like 
how do we move this along? The mom is just going to be the vehicle for a bunch of plot points. Well, and, and again, the issue that I have is, again, talking about how, for me, this is a very lumpy screenplay, is that he fails in Iceland and Greenland, mm-hmm. he flies back home, and he goes to see his mom, and he's like, well, mom, I failed, I'm getting fired. Which, to me, feels like it is the start of Act 3 of this movie, where it's like, now we're going to wrap things up. But, like, mm-hmm. this is the midway point for the movie, where then after, like, he discovers this, he's like, ah, oh, now i got to get to the Himalayas, and, like, go off there, and do another adventure. So it's just sort of like, the fact that he goes there, comes back home, and is like, I fail. And then it's like, nope, we're halfway done. Did Go to actually, another adventure. Did we track the time? I do think that it's not quite the halfway. I think that it is after the halfway point. It might be after the halfway because point, but I I, it is not... Structurally confusing, but I, the second adventure is highly abbreviated and mostly done through montage. It is, but the fact of the matter is you still have a whole big chunk of that to deal with, I think. Yeah, you do. But I, I do think that the low point is, is him getting fired and suddenly losing the negative forever. And I do think that structurally the, the turning point is when the mom says... Actually, no, I know where. I know where Sean... I actually told you and... Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, we were talking about this, and I think maybe it's just the fact that he has to travel someplace again that makes it feel prolonged. Yeah. And I was talking about how, like, maybe he's at the airport and he has this revelation, or maybe they had mentioned in the beginning that, like, Sean could either be in Greenland or he could be in New Jersey or something like that. And so, like, yeah. maybe he gets back and then finds out, like, oh, he was in New Jersey this whole time. He was, like, 20 minutes away by train or whatever the fuck it yeah. is, Yeah, I'm fine with the airport thing if that's, like, a good compromise, but I, I, do, I actually don't mind that. I think it's... I, I like that reveal that the mom knows... I like that this photographer went to see the mom and that they had this conversation. I don't know. I just like... If, if this was part of Sean O'Connell's, like, uh, quest to find the last cover photo, I kind of like the idea yeah, that he, like, went to I, go talk to his mom. I, I guess. It's just, it's improbable to me that he would go, I guess, to the life building, take a picture of Walter Mitty, then go find his mom, or otherwise... Maybe he did one or the other. Right, but, like, or, or why would he go find his mom? Why would he go looking for his mom first and be like, hey, where's Walter Mitty? And well, so he just about like, his work schedule. Yeah, but, like... Again, he could have gone to the office. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. There could have been other reasons he, yeah. gone to, he went to his mom. I do like that he went to his mom. I do like the fact that she he took her cake yeah. and used it. There, I, I don't know. That's just for me. It's like it's it's on the list of improbable things that I don't really care for. About yeah, this, I but. think if you built up more of a Walter Mitty Sean O'Connell relationship, that would have played better too. Yes. Right, which also can tie into the I fact agree. that you have a sense of what life is like prior to this too. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I I do I, that is something that I like that I would definitely want to preserve. I do actually kind of like that scene. I like the reveal and I like the the conversation that she has about Sean O'Connell about him being fired, and I like that she says like you can't be fired like. You've done. You've been a great employee. Like it seems like she actually is invested in his job and knows about it, which was a nice touch. Mm. Again, there's not enough done with it throughout the movie. And Shirley MacLaine, back to the point of what we're talking about, does fine with it. Yep. Yeah. Just you know, it's the writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, fixes. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to go first? Mine's quick. Go. Go. Does go. that help? Yeah. Go. Okay. Go. You go. You're almost like daring me. Let's laugh. More pitching. Okay. So my version of this is we do not have the Adam Scott character. There is no bully breaking up Life magazine. This is going to be a completely fictional magazine with a not so obvious on the nose title. <laughs> um, like Mitty's Life. Right. <laughs> Mini quarterly. But I think what it's going to be instead is they've been acquired. They're not sure what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a multitude of possible models coming their way, and online is one of them. Everyone's nervous. I think it's a really great way to actually get to know Walter and his relationships at work in that situation, because everyone's going to be, like, passing thoughts and like around or, like, frantically, like, whispering. I just feel like that's a really good opportunity to get some good character dynamics out there. And I think one of the things that could happen is I feel like some wacky celebrity photographer sending in a a negative is fine, and I actually kind of like that as, like, fuck, we can't find this negative, we have to go find it. 
What I want to have happen is that he and his work friend Cheryl, who I'm fine with still being new at work, but I would like for them to have an established some kind of acquaintanceship or rapport before the movie, have been doing a sort of, like, um, you know how you can get, like, those murder mystery boxes, like, send away from them, and then you have been doing that together because they both have this common interest in that, and he looks at that as one of his, like, things, like, one of the only things he has for himself. As much as he wants to support his family, he feels very suffocated by them. So when he somehow realizes that the Sean is likely in Iceland or Greenland or wherever, um... I want it to come from him. I want that to be something that he builds up into doing. That it might take some, like, talking to other people to get there, but I I think it's important that this is a leap he makes for himself, and instead of having that leap either given to him by Kristen Wiig or having it kind of, like, pushed on him mm-hmm. by Adam Scott. And I want my fantasy sequences to have some kind of inspiration that the audience can name. Like, not just... Like, oh, this is a wacky cinematic fight he's having with Adam Scott. Like, or now, like, that was the whole reason why we had Stretch Armstrong. I want that to actually have some kind of, like, setup and meaning and relevance. Um, I would like to keep the fantasy sequences throughout, but I think their tenor will change. I think in the beginning, these are probably more kind of, like, bored hero fantasies, which I think are very easy when you're bored to think of that. Um, but I think as it goes along, I think his fantasies will change into something more not grounded necessarily because it's fantasy but something I guess more like mature less like oh I'm gonna beat up my my boss out in this big superhero fight and you know, something else like mm. like I it, it could be like a childlike wonder thing which is maybe what they're going for but a lot of it plays as very childish and I want to get rid of that um I think him coming back and hitting it off with Cheryl is fine but I also agree like I feel like we shouldn't see the cover just because I think that is the best way to be like, that actually does not matter. The character growth was the thing that matters. All right, you want to hear a short pitch? Here we go. There's obviously a whole bunch of things you could actually do to make this movie as it stands better. Like I said, you get rid of Adam Scott, you just replace it with like the natural editor of Life magazine who's like, you know, we're switching to online, but we do want to have a big blowout for the last issue, so like, better find that photograph, and if you don't have it by Friday at midnight, we won't be able to pr- like go to press with that photo and we'll have to go for backup, whatever. You can do all sorts of shit like that to like make this movie a little bit better, I think, and still stick to the core concept of what they wanted to do here. I don't care about this movie that much in that sense. What I think I would do is if you said, like, do this movie, I would just go back to the short story. What I would want to do from the short story is I want to keep this the general crux of this guy who believes that he has a very boring life with this sort of, like, henpecked wife who's, like, always yelling at him to get his shit together, blah, blah, blah. And, Lee, it's interesting that you brought this up because this is truly what I was thinking of. I was watching the movie Topsy Turvy a few weeks ago, which is a very much a sausage fest for much of the movie. It's Gilbert and Sullivan doing the Mikado. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, it's all of a sudden like, and let's check in with like these three women and see what they've been dealing with this entire time, basically. Mm-hmm. So like, what if like, like two thirds of the way through the movie, you're like, all of a sudden, like you get his wife's perspective as like, what is her deal? Like, did she love him? Like, why did they like get married in the first place? Like, and just have very sort of like introspective way for him to sort of meet his wife halfway and sort of like understand like, what he's been doing to her and how how it negatively affects her and how like the world is not just revolving around his ludicrous fantasies that he is affecting other people negatively and that like clearly there's something about him that she must like otherwise she wouldn't still be with him and I get obviously the time the short story was written it's probably just the well you just don't get divorced that's it yeah. but like I, I think that there is a way that you could do justice to this short story without it having to be a big wife yells at tiny band for <laughs> doing things all day long yeah that's it 
I have a lot of affection for this movie. I you I might say that I like it over the Danny K one. I like the Danny K movie, but I I do, do you like hats though? <laughs> yeah, I hate hats. Okay. I hate women. What about women? I, it's a woman. Are you afraid to become a sexual outsider? <laughs> Um, I, I like, I think I would say that at best that I like them both for very different reasons, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm kind of a sucker for like the, the general vibe of this movie and the, um, the, uh, sentiments. I think that I see a version of it that's done better. So I, I do want to keep the spirit of it. So here's the thing. Uh, I'm keeping life magazine. Uh, you, some of these ideas have been spoken already, but they were mine. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I don't, Smoothing over some of the easy to smooth over details, like Adam Scott's character mm-hmm. being hyperbolic. Um, I do want to, as we talked about, have there be more of a relationship between Scott, o- Sean O'Donnell, um, and uh, Walter Mitty. I don't really know. We talked about this in the episode of like if it should be a person or over letters. I don't know. I feel like maybe they met once. I don't know. I think it's important to how I want to do this, and I can't really figure out the the, the, the nitty gritty. Uh, but they they have more of a relationship, and I think that besides that, uh, and maybe like Hernando, who like works within that particular sort of like dungeon, whatever mm-hmm. that he seems to work in, that he doesn't really have a lot of office friends. He has like acquaintances, but like mostly he's not like a misfit or someone that that's bullied or picked on. But he's just like who is I don't know who that is. Like he's just kind of like a loner, like mm-hmm. a sort of like outsider to the rest of the company. Um, but he does have like this relationship with with Sean O'Donnell and maybe maybe some other photographers that are, are of a, a kin, a similar vein. Um, I'm very much keeping the family aspect. I want to hew to the original script more, where like that's a big element, mm-hmm. um, and keep the sort of like final issue thing going, where he does have to chase down this this negative, and this negative is like the contestants of life, and Sean O'Donnell is making a big deal of it, <laughs> um, and he does have to go on this odyssey. What I like about the movie that I don't think we they ever. I don't think they're trying to say this necessarily, but this is sort of a vibe I got, is that maybe Walter Mitty has this, like, crazy idea of what the wider world is like because of all these photographs he sees. And the things that he encounters actually while abroad are, like, mostly, like, normal people. Like, people that, like, you... Like, the guy... These people, like, on these crazy freights or, like, these guys that are, like, guiding him up a mountain are, like, pretty mundane in the end. Like, the guy that's, like, guiding him through the forest in the script is like, I don't know, walking that snow, that's fucking hard. I don't want to do that. And, like, the, the guy on the boat whose, like, job is to work on this, like, very remote, difficult-to-live-on fishing vessel is, like, yeah, follow me on Instagram. And, like, <laughs> I kind of like the idea that, like, his – what he sees when he has to go on this journey is, like, not at all what he expects, which is, like, a bunch of more remote people. And people who are perhaps, like, fascinated by what Walter Mitty does mm-hmm. in his big Or I was going to say, like, people who are like him but in different ways. Like, yeah. the other people who, like, keep things going. Yeah, like, again, like, mm. there's a, that there's, the, there's that aspect and there's the aspect of, like – they're fascinated by him because they're not negative asset managers, and he's fascinated by them because they work on this, like, crazy fishing vessel yeah. in the middle of the ocean. Kind of like a greener pastures. Yeah, to each other, they both... And the other element that I just thought of while you were talking about Life Magazine... Or no, by... Yeah, I think it was by Life Magazine, is that um, people around the world have, have read Life Magazine, and so you show the impact that his work has had because everywhere they go, they're like, oh, like, you work for Life Magazine, yeah. and they show a cover right, of right, their right. favorite yeah, issue yeah. of Life Magazine. Wouldn't that have been great? Yeah, that's like, good. And yeah. that would have been a really good way to show you how important life is in this world. Yeah, they're like, I love that magazine, so they all have, like, this connection to it. Um, wow, the fantasy really sequences, I, I sort of had a similar idea where they're much more big and simplistic in the original version, and they're about what he thinks the outside world is like, where there are, like, these... These, like, sort of, again, mute, silent, uh, Sherpa-esque mountain guides that are very, like, mystical and wise. Mm-hmm. But when he meets them, they're like, fuck that, I'm not going up there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're not paying me enough for that. And then they go smoke a cigarette or something. Like, 
So that like, as as they evolve, there's this bit in the screenplay that we couldn't figure out if it was a fantasy or not, where he's in Iceland and he's or Greenland and he's in a taxi and he's talking to the, the cab driver and the cab driver's like, yeah, well, there's only like 58,000 people here, so we all have to double up on jobs. It's like, so what else are you besides a cab driver? It's like, well, I'm the queen of, of Greenland. And he's like, you're the queen? How did you get to be the queen? And he's like, well, my dad was the king. And it's like such a bizarre surreal right. conversation. They never talk about it being a fantasy. It's very right, so it's like, is it a fantasy? Is she just shitting with him? Shitting or is she yeah. actually the queen? Yeah. No idea. But I kind of like this idea that he does have conversations like this with people who are either mundane people or, or, fanta- or in crazy fantastical jobs, like Sean O'Connell. But Sean O'Connell is also kind of a weird goofball, oddball in a, in a certain way. Anyway, what we're building up to is I can't really figure out what I want the final negative to be, but I had this idea that like maybe years and years ago, like Sean O'Donnell like bar- like let Walter Mitty take his camera and fool around with it, and then Walter Mitty took some picture, and like it's not expected because that happened years and years ago, but it's this camera that Sean O'Donnell only gave to people like every now and then. And so he's only just finished the negative role. And so the cover is like the picture that Walter Mitty took and maybe it's of his family. Maybe he didn't know what to do with it. So we just took a photograph of like his mom and sister. Um, Or of the piano. Or of the piano. Yeah. Or something like that. So like, it's maybe that's how you tie the family plot together with the life ending. Um, or it's still Walter Mitty. I don't know, but it, either way, I a want selfie. a selfie. <laughs> Would that be so funny? <laughs> but I wanted it to be like uh, I think it's still the idea that Walter that he slipped the negative into the wallet, mm-hmm. um, and Walter Mitty threw it out. But I think that it's maybe a picture that Walter Mitty took, and it could even be like years ago, and it's unexpected because like why would it be that same camera that that role should have been done years ago? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's what I've got. Well, anyway, um, guys, would you recommend seeing this? I would. I would. No. <laughs> I, I, as I said before, I think the screenplay is pretty lumpy. Uh, so many times in this movie, it feels like the cinematic equivalent of someone grabbing me by the collar and screaming, Be moved! At me. So, uh, like, th- this came out on Christmas Day. You know that, right? Yeah. Like, yes. like it, it, this is such like this is such an oscar Beatty type yeah. movie. When it came out, people were like, meh. And then, like, very quickly, like, all the Oscar talk faded away yeah. entirely. And, and I get it, you know? I get why watching this movie... I get why going into this, you might think, like, ooh, is this a contender this year? Yeah. And I get why leaving it think no it's probably not so like i mean i definitely there's a lot in there for me and i get i know why i like it there's not a lot for me so for me it's a this it's a no that about does it kids yeah season two weeks we don't know what we're talking about yet we'll figure it out we'll figure it out yeah hey don't you worry (laughs) about some shit yeah well so we'll see you in two weeks with whatever we think facebook.com slash why watch podcast dropback.com is the website so you need to know bye Bye. And to look Paris, I cannot vex. The daffy sex, they've worn shrubs from the prairie, tubs from the dairy. They learn to wear the stone of the Queen Mary. And why do I sew each new chapeau with a style they must look positively grim in? Strictly between us. Entre nous, I hate women. <laughs> <laughs>